This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome all our Torah Anytime viewers. Tonight we are learning to and also to Zarin Ben Bat Zivande and Lilunishmat David Ben Benjamin Tzvi, as well as Lilunishmat for Avram Ben Chaim Yehuda and Yechaskel Ben Avraham. So before we get to actually the topic, I want to put a little bit of a, um, you know, just a, a, I don't know to say a shout out, but to, uh, to uh, you know, when, when somebody's going and they're looking for a Devar Torah to read before, you know, for the table or just Shabbos, you want to get some, some little, little Torah uh, tidbit. There's a lot of uh, publications that go out there, and I want to share with you one that uh, I met one of the, you know, I met the one who started it, Rabbi Mendel Berlin, this past Shabbos. And I just wanted to share with you his his organization. Uh, the reason why this stuck out to me is, is I asked him, I said, how did you start to write this? So this, so it's basically a weekly publication that you're able to get in your email. Some people print it out and put it in the shul. And I asked him, how did you start with this? So I said, what happened was, is there was a machlokus between the rabbi and a president of a certain shul. And he wanted to go and he wanted to sort of put the machlokus, you know, uh, you know, behind and he wanted to, to, uh, to uh, basically reconcile. And what he did was, is that he wrote a letter to both of them. So the rabbi didn't respond for whatever reason, and the president didn't respond to the actual letter that he wrote, but he responded back to him. He says, you know what, you're a good writer. Have you ever considered writing? So he was like, I don't know, not really. And then, so this, through a machlokas, he came out, like he decided to write for, you know, a, a weekly Dvar Torah. And it's it's not just one, it's a bunch of little tidbits on it. But the part that, so that's how it all started out. But the part that really struck me is I asked him, I said, I said you know, like, if I want to promote something, I need to know where is like who what's the hashkafa there's so many different you know twisted hashkafas out there like who like who is reviewing it so he told me that the whole article before it gets published it gets fully reviewed by Rabbi Nachman Goldman Rabbi Nachman Goldman is the postic of the Yeshiva Staten Island and that's under the leadership of Rabbi Ruvain Feinstein so I was like that's all you need to say stamp of approval you know done so if anybody wants to subscribe to this it's torahsweets.com um, you could sign up in their website Torah, that's Torah, T-O-R-A-H, S-W-E-E-T-S dot com. Or, uh, you can email add me to TorahSweets at gmail dot com. Yes, thank you for, po- that's in the chat over there for anybody who needs it. Thank you. Okay, so now let's begin to get to the topic at hand. So the topic at hand is, um, is gambling and stealing or theft. The, the reason, and I want to start off with gambling. The reason why this, this comes up as, I guess, I don't know if the word is scarier is, is the correct word, but it's, it's definitely something that sticks out. And that is when you go and you, let's say you meet a person who's a drug addict. So you can tell that the person is a drug addict. You know, like, like their eyes are like sort of glazed over. Uh, you know, I remember when I was speaking to somebody who was a drug addict a while back. Like some people I had a hard time saying, but like one guy I was speaking to a while back and his eyes were so glazed over that he seemed to be like, staring at me and like into the depth of my soul and spacing out at the same time simultaneously. He was like fully focused and nowhere near to be found like inside. Like it was, it was a very, so like it's very, very obvious. And besides the fact that if you, have, you see somebody who's a meth addict or something like that, it's, it shows in the physicality, you know, they're losing weight, they're, they're, uh, you know, scratching all over, they're agitated, whatever it is, it's easily to be, I put it this way, you ever walk on a New York subway, 
you could tell who's a drug addict. And who, well, I don't know. There's a, lot, there's a lot of issues over there at the New York subway. But generally speaking, when you see a drug addict, you can figure out, okay, this guy is a drug addict and this guy has you know, certain issues. When you look at an alcoholic, an alcoholic, you could also tell. You see a guy who's taking a bottle, uh, you know, a cup of uh, what looks like apple juice, but scotch, and he drinks it like water. You know, okay, there could be a problem over there. You could tell of a per- when a person has certain problems, you could tell it. But when somebody has a gambling addiction, when somebody has a gambling problem, you can't tell. There's nothing. They look 100% regular on the outside. They look completely normal. They're in the workforce. They're doing everything normal. And you cannot tell between one gam- one person who's a gambler and a person who's not. A drug addict to an addict, you could tell. An alcoholic to an non-alcoholic, you could tell. A gambler, you can't tell. You're going to be going on a date. You don't know if the guy is a gambler. You have no idea. To, you, you, there's no way to figure it out just by looking at them. Uh, well, there's maybe the, the way they tip. I don't know. But generally speaking, there's no way to figure it out. The, the even bigger issue with gambling is a drug addict, it's a lose-lose situation. You're losing in all, situ- in, in all areas. An alcoholic, you're losing in all areas. A gambler, a gambler can win in his addiction or her addiction. They're, they're able to win. They're able to play. You can't be an alcoholic and be like, okay, I just won. You, you don't win anything except for a failed liver if that's what your prize that you want. So you can't win anything, not as a, not as a drug addict, not as a, an alcoholic or any other type of addiction, but gambling. Gambling is an addiction, if I could say the only addiction, that you could actually win at it and you actually succeed in it. So that makes it even more dangerous than anything else. And, and there are stories and stories that come out that, you know, like even the wife of the person that's gambling around the clock didn't even know it. Or maybe she knew it and she didn't want to see it, whatever it was. But, but it was able to go undetected. There was a person who said over about himself that he would have this, he would have, a, he had a gambling addiction and he would leave after work, if he had some money that he saved up that he would be able to gamble, he would leave after work to Atlantic City, he would drive to Atlantic City, and he would gamble there the whole night, lose, win, whatever it is. After he finishes, he comes, he, he drives back in and he goes straight to work, doesn't even come home at night, goes straight back to work, lives on, you know, like, uh, these, these, uh, energy drinks and coffee and powers through another day. And you know what he said? He was even crazier that if he had money left over, he's going back to Atlantic City. And this is somebody who has a wife, has children that go to yeshivas, has everything that looks completely normal, but he has this addiction that he couldn't, that he couldn't shake off. And any money that he had would go straight to Atlantic City. And even though like the wife, they would ask her like afterwards, like, where did you think your husband went? And he would say, no, no, he's going to a barbecue in this area and he's going to help a chesed organization in this area. He had a different excuse for different things, didn't come home last night or whatever, was too, you know, busy. And he would be able to put one after another. It didn't matter if the excuses made sense or not. He had to do it. There was no other option. He had this addiction and he couldn't go without it. And needless to say that anybody that knows a little bit about the, you know, the people that suffer from, from this, uh, disease, let's call it the addiction disease or the gambling disease is you could lose your business. You could lose your job. You could lose your family. You could lose your home. You could lose everything. When you're gambling, you know, the also the biggest problem is it's like a gambler is, is very optimistic. 
a pessimist would not gamble because you'd be like, what do I mean? I'm just going to lose the money. But an optimist would be like, no, the next round, this one is mine. And you deal the cards again and you go. And meanwhile, you're selling your wedding ring. You're selling your kidneys. You're selling your house. You're selling your car. You're selling your children if you'd be able to put a value at them. And you're selling everything because why the next thing is going to make it, make it, it's going to make me the millions. It's going to make my money back. The problem nowadays is in the olden days, and when I say olden days, not that old, long ago, you would be able to, you would, if you want to gamble, you had to drive or travel to a place that had legal gambling. You had to go to Atlantic City, you had to go to, to uh, Las Vegas, you had to go to certain areas where you're allowed to gamble. Nowadays, you can do everything on your phone. You don't have to get, you could lose your life on your phone, well, in more ways than one, but you could lose everything on your phone. You could lose everything, you, could, you have the access like you never had before. The problem with this is, well, one of the main, many, many problems is you can't take something that wasn't coming to you. If you are supposed to make a certain amount of money, you are going to make that any, anyway. Oh, it could be in a kosher way. It could be in a non-kosher way. If you are supposed to make it, it could be across the world and it would reach to you. If it's not meant for you, you could sit right in front of it and not be able to take it. You would not be able to take it. We'll soon see a, later on in the, in the share. I'd like to share a story about this. But it could be literally in front. Nay, it could be given to you. It could be literally given to you on a silver platter. And you still cannot get it if it's not meant for you. The Gemara Beitza goes and tells us that whatever a person is supposed to make that year is put down on Rosh Hashanah. And that also applies to a thief. And if that thief would not steal... And he would perform the correct amount of ishtadlis that he needs to, he would receive the money in a respectful, kosher, and honorable manner. And the Taliyaris also brings down that there was a story that there was once a, a Jew in Europe. There's a story that was told in Nevardic. He was a Jew in Europe and he wrote to his wealthy uncle, he needed money for the Pesach. And he wrote to his wealthy uncle for support to ask him if he send him some money. And he waited so anxiously for the, for, you know, for the package to come back in the mail. And he kept on coming, the mailman kept on coming, and it was not delivering him the package that he wanted to. Day in, day out, nothing was coming. Finally, it was about a few weeks came out, and he was so obsessed about it that he was constantly, like, like, following this mailman. Until, like, he couldn't hold himself back anymore, that he ran to the mailman who was carrying his bag, and he saw, he found the largest package that he had. He grabbed the package, and he started running. Meanwhile, the police officer that was across the street saw this whole thing happen. You know, it's always when you go and you cut somebody off, and, oh, the police happened to be there. You never took a red light once in your life, and now you did it, and the police was happened to be right there. He's like, this guy never took anything from this, from the post office or the postman, and now the first time that he did, the policeman was right there. The police chases him, and he gets scared. He stops, and the police says, you just, it's a, you know, that's a crime. You can't steal mail. It's a big crime, depending on which country, but it's a very big crime. And uh, they they go and they cuff him. And as he's cuffing him, he the pa- package gets put down on the floor, and he sees that the package is addressed to him. And he goes over. He's like, "Officer, officer!" He's like, "Hold on one second. He says, "That's my package. It's my name on it. Look at it. It's my name. Here's my license. Check. It's my name." The officer said, "I saw you stealing, grabbing something from the, the you know the the postman's you know packages, and I had to take you in." They took him in. And he had, and he went to court. And the judge still found him guilty. He says, because it didn't matter that it was addressed to him. You took it without permission. You took it. You stole it. You're going to get, and he, and he got punished for it. Meaning that 
if we're even if we're supposed to get it, this guy was going to if he only would have waited. He would have received the package, kosher, v'yosher, everything to himself, without any issues. But because he couldn't hold himself back, because he went and he jumped the gun, he went and not only did he lose out on the fact that, I don't know if he was able to access the money, but now he also got punished for that. Meaning that you lose, if you take something that doesn't belong to you, or if you take something in a non-kosher way, parentheses gambling, you lose in this world and you lose in the next world. The gambling is so... It's like crazy on how many what people could gamble on. So you know you could go to casinos, fine. But then there's horse betting, then there is sports betting, then there is fantasy sport betting. Which, to be honest, I don't know what that means because there's sports betting. So what? I, 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 to be honest, I couldn't even care less. But there's like a fantasy sport betting. Then you have the slot machine. Then you have the card games. Then you have you know other. There's actually other areas where it's more kosher. In a certain sense, and we'll have to speak about it, like Chinese auction. That's also, in a sense, better. Lottery. Lottery, that's a bet. You pay and you want to buy the Mega Millions. You want to buy the Powerball. Are you allowed to do that? You know, we're speaking about you know, betting. We didn't speak, we were speaking about gambling. We didn't say you know, what's allowed or what's not allowed, but what about lotteries? So the Gemara in Sanhedrin, page 24, goes and says, it lists people that are disqualified from being a witness, from being an aide. Uh, and one of them, is Mesachik Bekubia. Mesachik Bekubia means someone who is a dice player, someone who plays with dice. So, and, and just so I understand that, that if you're disqualified from being a witness, from being an aide, that means that you're not allowed to be an aide in a chuppah, or in the ksuva, or even in the get, or even if you're bringing proof in, in Bezdin, you can't, if you are disqualified from aides, to the point that, let's say, you're sitting at a wedding, and you know somebody over there that's an aide for the wedding, and he or, he, you know, I... Whatever reason, you have reasons to believe that this guy, or know without, beyond reasonable doubt, that this guy is pusillatus. He can't, he can't. You have the obligation to go to speak to the rabbi. Obviously, you don't make an announcement. You don't ask, but you go to the rabbi and say, by the way, I, you might want to check into this aid. You know, I think that X, Y, and Z. You have to go and, and, and put it down to figure out, like, this could invalidate the wedding. So, well, to a certain extent. The... Gemara goes on and says, "What is Mesachik? What, what does it mean? Is Pasul Aedus Mesachik Bekubia?" So there's two there's two opinions. One of them is Rami Bar Chami that goes and says that if somebody goes and gambles and he wins the money, that money is considered as if he stole from the losing party, and this is known as, as an Asmachta. Asmachta means that when two people go into in, to gamble, both think that they're going to win, so both think that they won't have to pay, and when somebody loses. He never really thought that he would lose, meaning that he doesn't want to pay. They came in. So an asmacht means that it's something that you're doing on the assumption that you never had to pay. And because you never had to pay for that, you never wanted to pay for that, that's taking money that's not kosher. That's taking money that's on, on, the, on the level of stealing. That's opinion of Rami Barachami. Now, Rav Sheshis goes and says no. He says that's not the reason why Misachik Bekubia is Pasal Eidus. Because why? Because somebody who goes and somebody who goes and, and is gambling, he knows that he's going to either win or lose. So why are they disqualified? They both say that they're disqualified. Someone who is disqualified. 
Some misabiku means he plays with dice. That's the, 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 in the olden days, the way they, they used to go gamble is they used to roll the dice, and that's why they used to bet on whatever numbers, uh, would come up. I don't know. That's my rudimentary knowledge on olden day betting. And the, Rav Sheshis goes and says, so why are they disqualified? It's not because of stealing, but rather they're dis- disqualified because they're gamblers, and gamblers do not contribute anything to society. And if you're not contributing anything to the society, then you're disqualified from, from Adis because of this. Now the difference here would be, would be that, and actually let, let me first explain a little bit. Rav Sheshis goes and says that this is specifically by playing dice. Why playing dice? Playing dice, you don't have any control. You don't have, it's not dependent on skill, right? We're assuming that it's not weighted dice. We're assuming that it's regular dice. So it's all based on random luck. Of course, there's no such thing as random. There's no such thing as luck. But it's all based on the luck of the draw. That is not dependent on skill. Something that is dependent on skill does not include in this category. But Rabbi Sheshis goes and says that the reason, so let's try to like understand this. If somebody goes, Gemara says, and Misaha Bikube, he's a dice player. He is puzzle this, he is not able to go and, 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 and be a witness wherever a witness is needed. What are the two reasons of why he's, he's puzzle this, why he can't be a witness? Number one is because it's stealing. Because you're taking money that doesn't belong to you, because no one ever wants to pay. The other, the other reason is no, because they're disqualified because they did not contribute anything to society. What will be the difference over here? The difference between these two opinions is that let's say this gambler—that's not his profession. His profession is not gambling. He happens to do once in a while gambling, so he is contributing to society in his job and his whatever else that he's doing, and he happens to bet on the side or gamble on the side. So the difference here would be that according to the first opinion, he would still be Pasolaitis, but according to the second opinion, he wouldn't be Pasolaitis, because he is, he's, he's still contributing to society. But when does this happen? This happens only when it's at random, not when there is skill involved. Let's try to understand. By the way, the Rambam, the Rambam bowl goes and, and rules. Based, this is the Machlokas in the Gemara. The Rambam booms out, rules the Halacha, that gambling with a Jew is considered theft on a rabbinic level. And like all, like a blanket, it's considered theft. The Shulchan Aruch goes and brings down, the gambling of any sort is considered stealing. This is what the Shulchan Aruch brings down. And this is why Sephardic Jews that, you know, the, the, they follow the Rav Yosef Karo, he goes and he, they, they are not allowed to gamble on any, any reason, not even like sometimes, even if they are working full time. But the Ramah, who the Ashkenazim follow, which is the, I don't know if you open up a Shulchan Aruch, it's a, I don't know what's the right terminology for it. There's a word for it where there's a smaller, I don't know, I can't even remember. There's a, the gloss, I think it's called if it, in English, where there's a different, so you have the Sephardi halacha, and then you have the Ashkenazi halacha, which again, most of them is more or less the same, but there's a little bit of difference in nuances. So the Ramah brings down the opinion that it's permissible in certain occasions, and again, this is only when it's a random, and it's no, there's no skill involved. There's a few considerations. It has to be on a table owned by both parties. There's a whole different, uh, you know, considerations in order to make it permissible. But this is only when there's no skill. But if there is a skill involved, this is not allowed, according to everybody. So let's try to understand what is skill. And it'll be very easy. Poker, for example. Poker involves skill. To my understanding, again, I don't know how to play poker, but from my understanding, skill is involved in it. Therefore, it's not allowed according to anybody in any circumstances, anyway. And you have people that go and they do their Thursday night challenge and poker or something like that. You know, this is 100% not allowed from, from like all areas, whichever way you live, this is absolutely not allowed. 
There's also fantasy sports, which we spoke about before. This is also based on skill because it's from my rudimentary understanding and that you have to know the stats of certain players in order to, to put teams together and whatnot. So there is some skill involved. Horse racing, you, there's also skill involved. You have to understand the horses, you have to understand the terrain, and you have to understand the rider and all that. And this comes in, you know, like the, the sport betting becomes a very big problem when it comes to like the big games like the Super Bowl, where people go and people bet on the Super Bowl. And this is also a very, very big problem. So all these things that are involved skill is a very, very big problem. But what about lottery tickets? Lottery tickets, so it's interesting. So Chamavadya Yosef brings down that a Sephardic Jew may not buy lottery tickets. But later, it is said that he retracted, and I even called up and asked the POSIC about this, and he agreed, and he said, yes, he did retract from this, that a Sephardic Jew is allowed to go, and there's a whole reasoning behind it, we're not going to get to it, to the time limitations that we have, but a lottery ticket, a Sephardic Jew, or, there was even a reason not to even allow that, but a Sephardic Jew is allowed to buy a lottery ticket. Our Ashkenazi Jews are also allowed to buy, so all Jews are allowed to buy lottery tickets. One of the reasons also is, is because a lottery ticket in itself has a value. That if you buy a lottery ticket, you're able to go and now sell it. You're able to sell it for, and sometimes if let's say somebody goes to, uh, there's an out-of-state lottery. So some people travel out-of-state, they buy the lottery ticket, and then they sell it for a higher price over here. It has value. Obviously this is before the numbers are drawn, but it has certain value to it. And the, the, final, the final topic over here is Chinese auctions. Chinese auctions in, uh, you go to a, you know, some sort of fundraising organization, you know, based on whatever organization. I don't want to name out an organization. And you put in $5 to win a trip to Israel. You want you put $100 to win an uh, apartment in Eretz Israel. All these things are lotteries. Why is this allowed? Obviously, it's allowed. You see everybody is doing it. Not that that's a reason that you should say that something is allowed because you see everybody is doing it. But it is allowed. What is the reason that it is allowed? Uh, number one, besides the fact that it's you know, it, it, it's a lottery aspect and not a gambling aspect, but also because when you're giving money to Tzedakah, to charity, and it's based off a lottery, even if you lose, you feel comfortable giving over the money. It's not like, the, oh, the charity organization stole from me. No, you feel comfortable giving them. It's a good cause. But if your friend, Joe Schmo, whatever, is sitting in front of you, and he beats you at poker, and then he trash masks you, and then you're not, you're not comfortably, happily giving the money. Maybe. Maybe a small percentage. But generally, you're like, oh man, I can't believe I have to give him the money. I can't believe I lost the money. You don't feel good about the, about sending the money over. You don't feel good about giving the money. You don't want to give the money. You thought that you would go win. Nobody goes into a game thinking that they're going to lose. Only fools and losers go and do that. But generally, you think you're going to win. So you never want to give the money over. And that has a problem of, of, of stealing. The Rivash goes and says that gambling kills people. It is disgusting, abominable, repulsive, and addictive. The Bir Allah also goes and brings down, someone who is concerned for his soul, for his neshama, should distance himself or herself from gambling. The Aruch HaShulchan goes and says that somebody who is able to stop gambling will have a great reward. And finally, Rav Moshe Feinstein goes and brings down that gambling is a disgusting act. It's a joining a gathering of scornful people. Gambling is something that's not blessed. You're going into this and it's coming in with not blessed money. To try to understand that, you know, I remember once I heard, I, I don't know, I think it was from official Shachter, I'm not sure who I heard this from, years ago, that um, somebody went over to his rabbi, you know, was asking for charity. And the rabbi goes and says, here, I'm giving you a blessed dollar. The guy looks at the dollar, looks at the rabbi and says, maybe you have a cursed hundred, I'll, you know, we could switch, I'll, you know, keep your blessed dollar, give me the cursed hundred. But the truth of the matter is, let's say you do get a cursed hundred. 
you get some crisp money. Do you want, would you touch that? Then imagine you're walking down the street. And you're walking down the street and there's a big neon flashing sign that says psychic. And you know, whatever, you're not going to go, whatever, it's like a waste of time. But then there's, you know, the woman that she looks like, you know, like she came in through a time portal from the mid you know, uh, dark ages, you know, like full witchy look. And she comes out, she looks at you, like not at you, she looks at your soul. Like not like your depth of your soul. She like stares at you with like a crazy eye. One eye goes one way, another eye goes another way, but she's somehow looking directly at you and she is staring at you. And then she goes and she says, come. And she does it with like four fingers. And you're like, I, you know, like, no, thank you. I'm not interested. And she's like, no, for you, come. There's something I see. And you're like, no, I'm not interested. I'm not paying $20 for you to read my spit or whatever it is that you do. And she goes and she says, no payment. I need this. There's something going on with you. You have to come. You're like, no payment. Come on. <laughs> what type of good Jew, you know, passes up a free opportunity? Even though you didn't know that you're really not supposed to go to a psychic, halakhically, you're not allowed to go to these things. You didn't know about these things. So you walk into this, uh, you know, witchcraft and wizardry, uh, you know, woman. And she goes over there and she looks at you. And then she takes out a $100 bill. She places it in the middle. And then she starts mumbling words that sound like pure gibberish. And then she looks at you. And she takes her hand. She takes a knife. And she makes a little cut on her hand. And then she goes on and circles this 100 with her blood. And then she looks at you again. Does one of these like jazz hands focused directly at you. Says a bunch of words. Lights a match. And lights the blood circle around this $100 bill on fire. And somehow her blood is flammable, whatever reason. It goes up in flames. And there stands a crisp, clean, clean $100 bill. And she picks up the $100 bill. And she goes over to you and she hands it. And she's like, like, here, not only you don't have to pay me, I want to give you this $100 bill. It's for you. Now, most people, I can't say everybody, would probably be like, no, thank you. I just saw your blood somehow be flammable. I ain't interested in this. I'm out of here. You keep your blood, keep your money, keep whatever else you got going on here. You know, I'm out of here. Would you even... Now, she didn't even say that this was cursed. She just, you know, did some sort of ritual, looked at you, and get gave you a $100 bill. Would you take this money? Most people... Some people may say yes, but push and cut. You know, you're in that situation. You're not taking that money. Like you're 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 in that situation. You know, like you got to figure out. You got to put the ambience. It's like dark. There's a flickering lamp. You know, in the background, there's a black cat that's circling you seven times, like a chuppah. You know, there's like stuff going on. There's like music chanting from inside the walls. There's no boombox anywhere. It's like there's like uh, the scene plays itself that you're completely, completely scared. Do not want to touch anything. Thing over here, and they give you this, and they never say that it's cursed, blessed, nothing. But they give you the hundred dollar bill. You walk out a hundred dollars richer. Would you take the money? Most people would say, No, I'm not interested. You can, I don't know what they did to this money, but you and you know it's fake. You know, she's not, she's probably crazy. I'll put you on a you even see her meth pipe right over there. 
She even smokes a little bit before she starts a ritual. You know she's 100% crazy, yet you still don't want to touch that money. Why? Because, like, I don't know. It's just, like, it doesn't rub me the right way. It's like, oh, oh. you know, like, oh, no, no. I just, you saw her nails. They started curling. It was like, oh, no, thank you. You know, like, I don't think she showered in about six, seven, eight years. You know, there's things growing. Like, I'm, no, it's just, like, it's just something seems off about this. And you wouldn't touch the money. But yet, when it comes to gambling, when it comes to a lot, when it comes to certain things, there you go, and you're willing to take the risk, even though the Torah says that it's not blessed money. It's something, it's money that's not going to bring you bacha, it's not going to give you blessing. So why do you go and why do you touch it? Why do you deal with it? If you think about it that way, you realize that if you go and you gamble, and or you know somebody that's gambling, and you go and you realize that the money is not blessed money, it's cursed money, but not by like some like witchy crazy woman that the go and and decided that this uh, you know put some sort of heebie-jeebie spell on it. But some of the Torah says that there's not going to come bracha from it. Why would you touch it if you realize it's a lose lose situation? If you win, so now you lost because now it's not blessed money. If you lose, so now you're a loser and you lost your money. So now it's a, so it's a lose lose situation. So there's no reason, intellectually speaking. To go and gamble. You're not gaining anything from it. You could say, okay, I enjoy it. I do that. Find something else to enjoy. Right? You know, like, you enjoy that. There are some people, I don't know why they play with a knife. And they, you know, they split their fingers, you know, over here. And then they put, you know, that's like gambling. You know, like... Find something else to enjoy. Be like, oh, you, you walk into somebody who has a knife, his hand or her hand on the table, and they're taking a knife and they're putting it between their fingers very, very quickly. I don't know what the thing is called. But I think you guys understand what I'm talking about. And then you go be like, no, stop doing that. That's, you're gonna, you could stab yourself and be like, no, I enjoy it. Find something else that you enjoy. I would bungee jump for crying out loud. Like do something else that you enjoy. This is something, so if this is something that you enjoy, find something else that you could have, uh, you know, an enjoyment for. I'll give you a hint. Torah anytime is very, very enjoyable. Like it's great. You want to pass some time? Go to www.torahanytime.com. It'll pass you time and it'll earn you eternity. They should make that into a bumper sticker, no? Yeah, I think so. Alright, anyways, so, the Benish Chai, Yosef Chaim of Baghdad, goes and brings down a story. There was, in the city of Yerushalayim, there was a man by the name of Avraham. Avraham made a, uh, a, he did well for himself as a woodsman. That was his job, his business. And, you know, he would give money to Tzedakah, he, he did everything the right way, but one day, his whole mazal turned around. He went to visit his uncle, and he packed up his belongings, packed up his whole family, and they began their journey. When they came home, they realized that someone broke into their home and stole all their money. There was an evil, evil thief that was in the area that was scouting it, and he saw it when, he was, when, when Avraham was leaving his house. He went and he broke into his house, and he stole it. Back then, there was no place that you could put your money in. He put the money in his house, and under his mattress, whatever it is that he put it. And the guy came and stole everything. He left behind nothing. He said, Avraham sees as he starts sitting on the floor, he starts crying. He's like, what am I going to do? Is my whole life savings, everything that I worked for, what am I going to support my family? Meanwhile, this thief, he went and he took his, his wealth. He ran, he ran off to the, to the village of Engedi. Engedi is near, is near, um, Yamamelech. It's near the Dead Sea. And he, there, he wanted to go and hide the money, this, this, uh, thief, this robber. <clears throat> and, he started, you know, trying to hide the money. And meanwhile, Hashem punished him right then and there. He became, like, suddenly he had this, like, overcome with this, like, sickness that he sort of just, like, froze up and he just fell on the floor, like, fainted. 
When he, when he came to, he wasn't able to move. He was like sort of stuck in his place. And he, as much as he tried to move, he couldn't move. Until finally, I don't know how long he was stu- stayed over there, but he passed away over there. He died over there. Meanwhile, after he dies, the next morning, a young man by the name of Ephraim was walking past by. And he sees a guy laying on the floor. Ephraim runs over to him and he shakes him out. You all right? Are you okay? Is everything okay? And he sees the guy. He's not, he checks his pulse. He checks his breathing. The guy died. The guy passed away. And he's like, what is this? Like a mace mitzvah? Here's a guy that died on the road. So what is he going to do? There's no, you can't like dial 911 to have them come in and, and look at the body. He goes and he starts digging a hole to go and bury this guy. He didn't know where else to do. There was the middle of nowhere. And he starts digging a hole. And all of a sudden he sees in the corner of eye that near this guy's body, there was a bag of something. So he goes over and says, maybe I can figure out some sort of documentation in there. He goes in and he sees a bag full of money, full of gold coins. And, you know, now he's like, he, you know, his mind is like on the money. His mind is on the body. He says, you know what? He goes and he's amazed. So now you have an obligation to go bury this person. He buries a person. Now what is he going to do? Bury the money with him? So he goes and says, you know what? He says, this is a present from Shemayim. God wants, because I did the mitzvah of burying this dead person, now God gave me the reward of keeping the money. Where else am I going to give the money? Obviously, there's nowhere else to give the money to. So he goes and he decides he's going to keep the money. Meanwhile, He's traveling, this Ephraim, and he gets word, he's traveling with his money, and he gets word that his father, he, has, he was an only, only child, and his father got, was very sick. And he said, you have to come right away to your father, I don't know how long he's going to last. So he quickly runs home to his father's house, which happened to live in En Gedi. And there he goes, and he's by his father's bedside. And within a day or two, the father was on the ropes of, you know, between life and death, and within a day... He goes and he returns his neshama to his maker, and Ephraim was over there sitting there. He has to get ready for the you know for the shiva for the for the burial. He's like and he has the money. He's like he wants to stash it somewhere. He goes quickly and he stashes it in a hollow tree by his father's property, and then he goes and he buries his father and he's in the shiva and he's all like you know he he, put, he his mind obviously goes away from the money. He's all you know in his mourning stages. Meanwhile, during Shiva, there was, it, this happened during the winter months, and there was a, a torrential downpour that the entire area of Angedi became flooded. And this whole house where he was sending Shiva became flooded, trees were uprooted and were dragged away, and he ended up having to, you know, to go out, do Shiva somewhere else. It was a crazy, crazy situation. Meanwhile, he goes, and he has a dream. And in his dream... He is told that the money that he took did not belong to him. He did not earn it. And it goes back to, it should, it's going to go back to the rightful owner. Ephraim wakes up in his dream, forgot about the money. He's thinking about it. He's like, wait, he's like, nah, he's like, eh, it's a fake dream. There's nothing to worry about. And he pays absolutely no attention to, towards it. Remember, he has his money stashed away. He has no issues. Meanwhile, after Shiva finishes, and after he's able to get back to his normal life, after he finishes his morning process, he goes back to see, you know, his father's house. He goes to be, you know, this, he was a sole inheritor. He was going to see, get, obviously get the money out of the tree. And he goes and he looks and he sees the tree is gone. The whole money, the whole house is submerged in water. Everything is gone. And he has no other choice. He goes and he starts wandering. He had no money. He had no, he had nothing. This was all that he was banking on. So he goes and he starts traveling from, from city to city. Meanwhile, the, this hollow tree that sort of got washed away, was found by a certain person who decided that he was going to sell this tree. He, he found a few trees. He went and he went and he tried to find the woodsman, somebody who delves in wood to try to sell the tree to. And who did he go to? 
He went out there, none other to the Avraham, where the money was originally stolen from. He goes over to him and says, maybe you want to buy some wood I have. He says, let me see, let me inspect the wood. He looked at uh, this package of wood. He says, you know what, I do need more wood. Fine, you know, I'll buy the wood from you. And he buys the wood. Meanwhile, Avraham is, op- you know, is cutting up the wood to the pieces that he needs. And he gets into the part where it's hollow. And what does he look? He looks and he sees inside, it's his money. He's like, how amazing it is. Hashem gave me the money back. He didn't know how it came. He didn't know anything of the story behind it. All he knew that he got the money back. A short while later, this Ephraim goes and he's traveling. And he stops by Yerushalayim. And the first factory that he stopped just happened to belong to this Avraham. And he goes, Avraham looks at him and he started, he had a mercy in him. He's a young guy, strong guy. Why is he going from place to place? Let me give him a job. He goes and he gives him a job in his factory. And not only that, he also lets him board in his home. He lets him sleep and eat in his house. One day, Ephraim and Abraham, they're getting close and they're schmoozing. And Abraham starts telling him, he says, you know what happened a while back? A crazy thing happened. He goes and he says that I had, uh, you know, a certain amount of money hidden in my house. And I went to travel to my uncle. And somebody broke into my house and stole my money. And all of a sudden, something like clicked in Ephraim's mind. And he's like, and then you found it in a tree? And Abraham literally just fell off his chair. He's like, how do you know that? He's like, what do you, he's like, what's going, he's like, how do you know that? And Abraham was like, well, no, I was just guessing. Are you sure? Like, did that really happen? And he's like, yeah, like, how do you, like, where, like, where do you even come to that conclusion? So Abraham goes and says, let me tell you what happened. So he says, I, you know, he goes and he says, I was walking and I found the guy that died. And I found him a bag of money. I didn't know that he was a robber. I didn't know that he stole anything. But I took the money and I had a dream. I had a dream shortly afterwards that the money doesn't belong to me and the money is going to go back to a person that it's rightfully theirs. And look what happened. It, I went and I hid it in a tree. goes and the tree went and pushed away and it went to somebody else. Obviously it was sold it to you. And everything went back to you. So Abraham was like, wow, I can't believe you are so involved in this story. You know what? I want to give you a part of my money. I want, I, you know, I'm so grateful. I'm thankful to God for what HaKadosh Baruch Hu has given me. Let me pay you back a finder's fee. So Ephraim's like, listen, he's like, as much as I would like to, you know, and I appreciate the money back, this money obviously belongs to you. Like, you know, we, you know I've tried taking the money. The money is not, obviously it was not meant for me. It's meant for you. And he didn't want to go, and he didn't want to take the money. He felt guilty taking the money, he didn't want to take the money. A short while goes by, and Abraham's son gets married. And he decides he's going to close his business for a week to focus on Sheva Bachot and, you know, spending time with his family. So he goes over to Ephraim and says, you have a week of vacation. Ephraim says, you know what, okay, let me go visit my family. He has a little bit of distant family, he wants to go and visit him. So Abraham says, listen, you're going and you're traveling, let me prepare you some food. He goes over to his wife. And he says, listen, he didn't want to take the money, but bake him a loaf of bread, and in the bread, hide gold coins inside. Hide the hundred gold coins that I wanted to give him before, hide it inside this way. When he's going to open it, it's already in his possession, and he's going to keep it. So the wife said, no problem, that's what she did. And he goes and he gives him a loaf of bread, he says, this is for your journey. He says, thank you very much, and he travels on the road. He goes and he's traveling, and he has to cross the border. And this... You know, steps by the border, and the border official goes and sees this delicious loaf of bread, bread that he's you know sitting right next to him, and he's like the border official says, "Listen," he says, "I see you have that you know loaf of bread." I says, "I'm really hungry." He says, "You obviously go through, but let me pay you for that loaf of bread. I'll buy it off you." The, you know, if I'm saying, you know, I don't need, I'm not so hungry, I need the extra money. He says, "No, no, fine." They settled on the price, and he sold him the loaf of bread which had the gold coins inside it. Meanwhile, 
it was very busy for this border control. He didn't have time to even eat the loaf of bread. But he did have a wedding that he had to, a Sheva Bachot, that he had to go to that night. And the custom was that when you go to a Simcha of somebody, you go and you bring some sort of food to this Simcha. Whose Simcha was he going to? None other than Avraham's. And he goes and he travels to this Avraham's, uh, you know, residence. And he welcomes him to, you know, Pharaoh welcomes him to, to Simcha. And he says, here's my present, my present to you. And he gives him a loaf of bread. And as many husbands could attest, like if their wife bakes a loaf of bread or bakes challah, you could tell that it's your wife's bread. And he looks at it and he's like, that's not, that's my wife's. But he didn't say anything. He says, fine. He says, he takes the loaf of bread, feels that it's heavier. <laughs> Obviously, I don't know why no one can figure out by the way. He says, it's heavier. And he puts it on the side. And the Sheva Bacha goes by without a, without a hitch. And a week goes by and Ephraim comes back. And now Abraham goes over to Ephraim. And he goes over to him and he says, how was the loaf of bread that I gave you? And, you know, at that point, you could either be like, oh, it was delicious. Oh, so good. But if Fry decided, you know what, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. And he says, you know, I was by the border and he wanted it. I ended up, you know, I feel bad, but I ended up uh, selling it to him. And Avram goes and calls him over and he says, come, I want to show you something. He says, this is the loaf of bread, right? And he says, yeah. He says, I want you to cut it open. Cut it open. Why are you going to cut it? He takes a knife and he starts cutting it open, and he realizes the whole thing was empty and was full of gold coins. Just started spilling out of it, and he started smiling. He says, "I don't know what it is, but apparently, apparently, Hashem didn't want you to have the money because wherever way I try to give you the money, it always comes back to me." But a short while later, Avraham goes and he decides. You know what? He says his Ephraim is already of age that he you know should be getting married. He has a, Avraham has a daughter that needs to get married. He goes out to him and says, "You know, would you consider my daughter?" To be your wife. And he says, ah, would I ever be so lucky? I, you know, I wouldn't even think I would deserve it. And he's like, you know what? That's the type of guy I want for my daughter. <laughs> Somebody who thinks they don't deserve her. That's the guy that I want. And Avam says, Mazatov, you know, this is, it's, you know, it's a shidduch. But he says, now I'm going to give you the money. Now I'll give you a dowry. Now I'll give you part of it. Now Avraham says, now I'll take it. Now it's part of, you know, it's for my wife. Now, now I'm going to go and I'm going to take it. But we see over here, this is a story for the Benish Chai. We see over here that if money is supposed to come to you, it will come to you. If it's not supposed to come to you, it can literally be in your hands. Hint to what we said earlier, right? This is the spoiler that we gave earlier. It can literally be in your hands and it can be taken out and given to somebody else. I didn't say taken out. You can give it away. You can literally have the hundred million dollars in your hands and then you will give it away. No one will take it away from you. You will physically go and give it away because if it's not meant for you, no matter what you do, it's not going into your pocket. The idea behind this is so imperative, so crucial, so important to our day-to-day lives that if we go... And if we take something that doesn't belong to us, or we do something that's not kosher, we will not gain from that. There is, you could plug it into gambling, you could plug it into stealing, theft, or anything else for that matter. If it's something that you're not supposed to do, it will not come with bracha, it will not come with blessing. The Baal Shemtov brings down also another story. Yeah, look at that. We got the Sephardi and the Hasidim. We're bringing all, all areas today's stories. The Baal Shem Tov had a student. And this particular student was a good student, but he had this Yitzah, he had this evil inclination. He had this like burning desire to steal. Like the, it, it didn't make any sense, but he had this like burning desire, desire to steal. And there was a wealthy woman who was a single woman. She, she's, she was actually a younger girl that her father made a lot of money and died young and left her all the money. 
And uh, she had a lot of money. She had, you know, a huge mansion. She had servants. She had guards. She had watches. Yeah, like the whole nine. Uh, you know, I wouldn't say a Bentley, but whatever it was, like the horses, you know, like everything to like to the T. And he has a strong desire that he, that all of a sudden this, this student has a strong desire that he, like he couldn't hold himself back and he, like, gotta steal. I don't know what other words to say. And he goes, late at night, he goes over to this woman's mansion, a single woman's mansion. And he goes over there and he sees that the guard is snoring at a station. He's like, you know what? This is Minashamayim. Like, this is like, obviously, like, and he walks in. And then he gets to the part where the dogs are there. And the dogs are such in a good mood because they just fed. They were just fed. And they're so full and happy. Their tails are wagging. They're jumping up. They see another person and maybe they're going to play with them. They weren't even acting as their watch. And they were sitting and jumping for joy. And he's like, this is Minashamayim. And he goes in and he goes up to the front door. And he's like thinking, you know, like, maybe I should go for a window. And he says, you know what? Pulls the handle. And the door just swings right open. And he's like, no. Uh-uh. He's like, you gotta be kidding me. And he walks into the house. And there's not a servant, a soul in sight. He even tried, hello? Hello, 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 hello. Nothing. There was like nothing going on. In, there was like no one there. And he remembered when he was younger, he always grew up without any money. He went to ask money from when her father was still alive. And her father didn't hide where his safe was. So he knew where to go, and he starts walking through this mansion directly to the safe. And as he's walking, he's seeing the amazing like, plush carpet that she has, the beautiful crystal chandeliers, the paintings that belong in museums, the, the, the furniture that he has made of like solid gold. It, it's like astounded by this, like a museum that he walks into. And he walks right into this room where the safe is. And he sees the picture, he takes the picture off, and he sees the safe right there. And he's about to turn the dial. He's like, how am I going to open it? And he starts turning it. And meanwhile, the safe just opens open. He's just like, just opens up. And the gold is shining at him. And it's whispering, take me, take me. And he's like, I will, I will. And he's about to take the gold. He's about to take all the stocks of bonds and papers and who knows and jewels that he, was, that he had over there. And suddenly, he stops for a second. He's like, wait a minute. He's like, this was too easy. He's like, the guard was sleeping. The dogs were out. The door was unlocked. The safe opened up. Not a servant in sight. The woman is not over here. The, the, he's like, something feels off. And as he's having these thoughts, suddenly, a Gemara and Beza goes and pops into his head. And the Gemara that says that if someone's destined to make a certain amount of money, that money is already decreed from Rosh Hashanah. You cannot get more than it was decreed on Rosh Hashanah. And suddenly, he had an overcoming overwhelming, I should say, fear of heaven that ran over him. And he's thinking, he says, why am I taking this? He says, if this belongs to me, then I will get it anyway. If I take it, it's, I'm not going to gain anything from it. And he gets this like this fear that he doesn't touch any of the gold, but he leaves the safe open and he runs right out of the house. He runs out of the house and he starts screaming well, after he got out and farther away. He starts screaming, Hashem, help me, Hashem, help me. And he starts crying to Hashem. He starts crying and crying. The next day, the Baal Shem Tov calls him in. And he's like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble now. You know, he, Baal Shem Tov calls him in. And he says, you know the wealthy woman, Sarah, you know her? And he's like, oh, how does he know everything? And 
he goes and he, and he says, uh, yeah, 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 I've heard of, uh, yes, I mean, the the house on the, where was it again? Yeah, yeah, like, I'm familiar with, uh, so, the Bashanath goes, and he says, you know, last night she came to me, I, you know, and she said that there was an attempted robbery in her house. And he started to sweat, he's like, oh, you're he's like, uh, He's like, did they, did they uh, find, uh, see somebody who, find, uh, maybe a fingerprints of something before fingerprints DNA, I don't know, something happened, like, uh, what, did they, yeah, and he starts mumbling, and Bashanath was like, you know, like, she came over to me, she's like, you know, she's a single woman, and she came over to me a while back, she wanted to marry somebody, she's living in this huge mansion all by herself, and she came back to me a while before, she didn't want a businessman, she's not interested, she wants somebody to sit and learn Torah, She's not interested in a businessman. She said her father taught her very well how to handle the business. She could take care of the business. She wants somebody to sit and learn all day. And it's just, I couldn't, you know, like, I, I couldn't find a good match for her. It says, but recently, you know, your name popped into my mind. I should pop, pop your name into my mind. And I think you'll be a good match for this, for this Sarah. Would you agree to go and marry her? And needless to say, it was a short period of time. They ended up getting married. But the shock that this student had, he's like, wait a minute. He says, I almost took it. This was going to be mine anyway. He didn't even have to wait 24 hours to find out that it was going to be his. But at the end of the day, that when we're doing something right, it will come back to us. We will get whatever it is coming to us. Nobody can steal from you that it wasn't originally decreed. No one can harm you. No one can hurt you. No one can take anything unless it was decreed. And it's likewise, you cannot take something that doesn't originally ordained or perdained or was decreed for you to have. Gambling, stealing, fraud. This is all taking money that was not intended for you. This is taking money that was not meant for you. So what either what's going to happen is you're going to lose it, or it's going to be non-blessed money, or you're not going to get money that you were supposed to get in the kosher way. So it's a lose-lose situation in any areas. If you get it, and it's what you're supposed to get, so now you're not going to get what you were supposed to get in the kosher way. And if you weren't supposed to get it, then you're going to lose it. And it's so much painful. You know, there's a saying, it's better, oh, what's the saying? It's better not to, lo- it's better to, I don't know. I'm going to botch it up because I don't even know what I'm going to say. Something about love and losing, whatever it is. It's a geisha saying and it's wrong. I'll tell you that much. Um, but, the, you know, the idea behind it is, is that when you deal with finances, is it better to have everything and lose everything or never have anything to begin with? And the answer is, it's, it's much better that you didn't have anything in the beginning, so you didn't lose anything. It's so much harder to lose something than not have something from the beginning. So why take something that you're only destined to lose? It makes absolutely no sense. It makes absolutely, there's, there's no plus sign from it. There's no positive angle from it. I want to finish off with one final story. There's a story that was sent to me by my grandmother today. And... And I just like, you know, like sometimes like stories just come to you like, like from like different angles at the last, but like, you know, like how does, like, uh, you, like how Hashem works. Unbelievable. This story was told over by Rav Chaim Zaid. And the story goes that there was a, um, there was a certain kolo that in Eretz Yisrael, that when, just a, a background, people understand that when you go, when someone learns in kolo, there's a, there's a small amount of money that the kolo pays the people to sit and learn all day. So the majority of the kolo in, in Eretz Yisrael, they pay about somewhere between five to six hundred dollars per month. The, this particular kolo paid four times that amount, a significant amount. And it had over there about eighty avrechim, eighty people that were sitting and learning all day. And they were paying four times the normal going rate for what uh, what what uh, people pay for a call up. 
And who was funding all this? A rabbi. Rabbi then of Rabbi Gold. And he would personally fund this. In two years, he spent almost $4 million funding this. Now, everybody knew that this rabbi never had money. Like, where did he, where is he getting all this money from? And he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't share this information. One, one Purim, he, you know, drinks a little bit. And he, his students ask him where he gets his, where, how he made his money. And he told them the story. When Reb Chaim Zaid heard the story, he was so inspired that he went to find, to find this rabbi, to hear it from his mouth directly. And the rabbi told him, says that a, a few years ago, he wanted to take his children on a fun day. He wanted to take them away out, out on a day, spending time from, uh, with the parents and the children, or a father and the children. But Kenan already has 12 children, so he couldn't take all of them out at the same day. So he took six out one day and six out the next day. And he took the six children out. And he went to different places, the fun, and then they went for dinner afterwards, and they went, on, they were on the way home at 11.30 at night. At 11.30 at night, they were traveling on the highway, and he didn't realize, and they, they ran out of gas. So, the rabbi gets out of his car, tried to, you know, hail down people, try to get some help, and 30 minutes go by. I don't know if anybody's ever driven in Eretz Yisrael, but in certain highways in Eretz Yisrael, 11.30, especially if you're traveling from up north, it's pitch black, you don't see a car. And there was, uh, 30 minutes go by, and someone pulls over. And when he asked what the problem was, when, he, when the rabbi told him what the problem was, he goes over, this, this person that pulled over goes over and says, listen, he says, you know, I'm a secular Jew. He says, I'm not too, uh, you know, fond of religious people. And then he goes, and he pulls away. Imagine that. The guy pulls up, sees a rabbi and six children. He's like, you know what, I don't like your kind. And he pulls away. A few minutes go by, and his conscience, you know, kicks in, and he circles back, and he travels back to the rabbi. And he says, you know what? He says, I can't leave your kids. For you, I can't leave your kids like this. And he goes over, and he says, come into the car, I'll drive you to the nearest gas station, and you'll pick up, and I'll drive you back. The rabbi thanks him, goes into the gas, he goes into the car, and drives him to the gas station. They get to the nearest gas station. At this point, it's after midnight. And this secular Jew is waiting for him in his car. And a short while goes by, and the rabbi comes out without holding anything, any gas, nothing. And the rabbi gets into the car, and the secular Jew is like, where's the gas? And the rabbi says, I'm not buying from here, you can take me back to my car. And the guy's like, why are you not buying? He says, there's a gas station, buy the gas. And the rabbi goes, and he says, you see that sign? There's a sign on this gas station that says, Patuach B'Shabbat. Patuach B'Shabbat means that they're op- we are open on Shabbat. So the rabbi goes and says, they're open, I'm Shabbat, I'm not giving them, I can't buy from here. The man, the secular man says, are you crazy? He says, your children, your family is stuck on the highway, it's past midnight. There's gasoline here, just take it. The rabbi looks at him. The secular man, he says, you don't understand. And he goes to him and he says, I love Hashem. And Hashem loves me. Somebody that goes and sells gasoline on Shabbat, does business Shabbat, that's one thing. But to put up a sign, to flaunt it to everybody and say, you know what? No, I sell on Shabbat. That is dishonoring Hashem. And I can't stand for that. I will stand up for Hashem's kavod, for Hashem's honor. And I will not be part of this chilul Hashem. The man goes and he angrily drives this rabbi back to his car. Drops him off and angrily drives away. But a few minutes go by. And his conscience starts kicking in. And he's like, I'm going to leave the kid. He circles back around, travels back to the rabbi. And he's like, Rabbi! He says, get in the car! 
He says, it's not for you, it's for your children. And they travel many miles to the next gas station. And they fill up gas, and they come back to the car, and they, and they fill it up, and the family gets home after 1.30 in the morning. Three months go by, and all of a sudden the rabbi gets a phone call from this man who helped them that night three months ago. And the guy goes, the second guy says, we need to talk in person. It's fine, you know, come, they met, they met in person. And the man goes and tells this rabbi, he says, listen, my father owned six large buildings in Tel Aviv. And he recently passed away. And he says, I'm the sole inheritor, I'm the sole heir. And in my father's will, it's, he said, the secular Jew said, he says that he wanted to leave 40% of his estate to somebody whom Hashem loves. And he goes and explains in his will, and he says he wasn't the best Jew in his lifetime. But when he faces God, he wants to let, tell, you know, he says, God, I understand I wasn't the best Jew, but I helped somebody who you loved. And this he hoped that will give him a good judgment in the next world. The man reads this will, and he says, he's a secular guy, he doesn't, how am I going to find somebody whom Hashem loved? Like, how, how do I, and then all of a sudden, I remembered that line that you told me. When you came out of that gas station that was patuach b'shabbat, that was open on Shabbat, you went and you told me, I love Hashem and Hashem loves me. He says, you're the only person that I know that said that, that I know that Hashem loves you. He says, if that's the case, he signed over 40% of his estate to this, to this rabbi. And the rabbi goes and says, I support my kolo from the revenue that he earns from this building. Now when I heard this story, I realized where most people will gain the most from the story was from the fact of like, wow, look at the guy and look how he got 40%. And look at the, the, whole, the whole first part of the story is where people will gain the most. But you want to know which part hit me the most? Is that because Rahu gave him something special. He now all of a sudden this rabbi became very, very wealthy. You know what he did with his money? He went and he spent that money in opening up a kolo and giving it over to 80 other kolo families. That's what he did with them. How many people, how many rabbis can even say we can do that? To go and say you get all of a sudden a large windfall and now instead of going and, you know, of course, helping your organization and doing whatever it is that you're doing, but going and giving it all to what? To, to another, to organization? So that, with the inspiration that I saw from this story was from that aspect, that he had the money and what did he do with the money? But the lesson that we could all learn, that if something is coming to you, it, it is coming to you. You don't have to scheme, you don't have to find. Hashem has His ways. Hashem knows where your address is and knows where to send the money. You will never ever lose out when you listen to Hashem. You're going, imagine what was going through this rabbi's mind. It was 12 o'clock at night. His children were tired, exhausted, possibly crying in the car. And he's sitting in this gas station. And it says, Patuach Bishabbat. He could have been, you know what? Ordinarily, I would never buy this. Bishasat There's so many other Gemara ideas. And really, it's okay. Really, it's a mitzvah because it's for my family and chesed starts at home. I could give you a thousand and one reasons of why it would have been a mitzvah to buy from this and save his family and bring him home. But he says, you know what? No, it's not right. It says, he's, he's out, he's disgracing my father in heaven. It's God. Blatantly goes and disgraces it. I don't want any part of it. It's wrong, then it's wrong. And if something is wrong and he stood up for it and he went that wrong, guess what? At the end of the day, he got paid back oh, way more than tenfold. 
way more. He got paid back for everything because you don't lose out. You don't lose out if you follow what Hashem says. Gambling, stealing, all this fraud, even, you know, this, uh, this insurance fraud, I didn't even get to that. I realize that the, the, the hour, but we even touch upon that. But obviously, it falls into the same thing. It doesn't matter if it's a, it's an organization. It doesn't matter if it's a, a, you know, entity. Whatever it is, if it's wrong, it's wrong, and there's no blessing that's going to come from that. And if you're supposed to make something, you will make it because God knows where you live and God knows your bank account. Hashem knows how to get to you. You don't worry about that. You worry about one thing and one thing only. And that is doing what you're supposed to do. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.